I looked at him. I looked at the buttons on the elevator and I watched what he did and I pushed the right level. And then I just held his wrist and I watched him closely and I kept looking at the doors and immediately knew exactly which door he, he picked. And I said, it's going to be this one. And he, he about left the hotel. He was so freaked out. <laughs> nice so job. Like, That's awesome. Yeah. So, I'm excited so, about this. So, this is going to be fun. Yeah. I was say, uh, Brandon secretly has his uh, interrogation dungeon underneath his house. And, That's right. Uh, <laughs> the operatives in the region bring him there. No, 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 the, no, no. As long, as long as it's consensual, it's all good. <laughs> yeah. Safe words, pineapple. <laughs> my, my safe word is keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Present Fathers Podcast. This is the show that focuses on climbing the mountain of fatherhood together. We believe that dads matter. That's why this show is for you. So gear up, dads. Get ready. It's time to start climbing. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of the Present Fathers Podcast. My name is George. I'm joined with Dustin and Brandon. Unfortunately, Justin is very sick today and is not going to make the episode, but our guest tonight is Dr. Scott Concrite. He is a psychologist, and we are very thrilled to have him on the show, and we've got a lot of questions teed up for some very interesting conversation. So, Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you. you. Glad to be here. Appreciate yeah. it. Appreciate it. By the way, I'm so, exhausted already just after that intro, like climbing the mountain already. Like, I'm, Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well... We, we like to work out our physical muscles, not just our brains, too. So that's a yeah. good thing. That's a good thing. Uh, so tonight we're going to do mostly the brain thing. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna definitely between you and Brandon. I think there's going to be a lot of brain power floating around. So I'm I'm looking forward to it though because I'm ready to learn. Dustin, <laughs> I mean I'm mostly Neanderthal, so I don't I don't anticipate uh, contributing much yeah. here, but I'll do my best. No, of course, of course. So, uh, Scott and Dustin, you are mutual friends. You've known each other for quite a while. So Dustin invited him to the show. And I'm, I'm very excited, Scott, because um, just backstage talking, you've got a lot of really interesting things that I want to learn from. So uh, could you start by just introducing yourself briefly in terms of your, your practice and what you've done and uh, maybe hint at your meaningful happiness work that you're doing now, too, and, sure. and then we can just get into conversation? Sure, of course. Yeah. Yes, I'm a psychologist. I've been practicing here in Atlanta for Wow, I think over 27 years, and I have been doing mostly group work. That's my specialty. And somewhere along the way, what what I really got interested in is why people who came in with, into my practice didn't seem to know certain things about how relationships worked. And so a few years ago, I started thinking, well, well back up. I first thought, you know, I'm going to retire and teach courses for kids on Relationship 101. And then I realized, no, my patients that I'm seeing now need this course. So I started working on this, and I came across Affect Theory by Sylvan Tompkins, but halfway through working on the syllabus for this course, and it totally blew me away. It was one of those, one of those eureka moments where I said, this is what's missing in psychoanalysis and in psychotherapy in general, is an understanding of why we're motivated to do what we do and why, you know, how do we pay attention to certain things in the world and why, why do we basically, why do we care? So we're basically wired to care, which is a programming issue. If you're an AI, how do you, how do you program AI to give a shit? Mm -hmm. 
Exactly. Or if you're a nihilist. We are nihilists. We believe in nothing. <laughs> AI, you know, I, I, this, whole, this whole issue around AI is so fascinating because AI doesn't care. It does, it, it, right. What pleasure is it getting? So pleasure, interest, enjoyment, those are affects. Okay. AI doesn't have those. Okay. You all have kids, right? Yes, we do. Yep. So when they were all, how many, like, you have like several or something like that? I know Dustin, you have one. Yeah, but me and Dustin have one a piece and Brandon's got two. <laughs> okay. As infants, you saw all nine affects. You knew when your child was interested in something, when it was disgusted with something, when it was enjoying something, when it was angry, and so forth. You know, all not, there's nine of them. I can go into them later. But those are the things that bring things into awareness. And the thing about affects that work importantly for infants is that they tell they tell the caregiver what to pay attention to. When your child starts screaming in distress, you kind of, I hope, knew what to do. <laughs> like, pay attention. Do something about this. Find out what's going on. Exactly. Otherwise, how would you know? Okay. Right. They can't talk. It's a, it, all it is is nonverbal communication. But they're communicating very, very loudly. Mm-hmm. And they communicate very, very loudly when all of a sudden they beam a smile at you. And you automatically beam one back, okay? Or they cuddle up into you, and they're totally enjoying you. And what do you do? You just go like, "I'm the best dad in the universe." Yeah. And it's the best feeling in the universe <laughs> it's too. It's the best feeling in the universe. Those moments are priceless. Yeah, exactly. We're we're wired for that, and so I think the best way to understand affect is is firmware. No, I'm not. It's been a long time since I've been hanging around with computers in terms of programming, so I kind of have only a vague idea of how firmware works. My understanding is like the interface between the hardware and the user, right? So it's almost like the keyboard. Is that is that correct? One of you guys know better? Brandon, yeah, it's, it's hardware. Yeah, it's absolutely hardware. But it's hardware that interfaces with human interaction, right? Correct, correct. There has to be an input. Right. So so that's that's what affect is, is input. Right? So it's input from a stimulus from the environment. And so that that in, in turn causes a feeling. And there are nine feelings that we have that as an infant, the infant has no memory of anything, right? At least mine didn't. Yeah. I mean, I'm assuming yours didn't come preloaded with <laughs> right, you got to teach them everything. From Amazon. everything out. Um, they don't know. And so you see pure affect in infants. And then around age two and a half, you start getting memory because around two and a half, they start speaking. And they start speaking because they now have a, a memory that they can remember. You know, they, they have, they have a, the ability to now remember what things feel like, who's doing the doing whatever that causes the feeling or making hypotheses around that and also where. So the example I give is that when, when they're six months old and they get their shots, they're not afraid. They may have discomfort from the shot, but they're not afraid of the doctor's office. Two years later, it's a different issue, right? 
and then age five, it's different. Yep. Depending on depending on how the parents, caregivers, treated that child around getting the shots and how effectively they were acting at the doctor's office, that kid is either going to be fine with going back and saying like this is a necessary pain in the ass sort of thing to do, and I trust my parents. But if the parents shame them, it's just going to add to the distress of going to the doctor. So again, well, I have to say it first, right? Before I can say again, <laughs> affect, memories, memories, it takes memories and affect to make emotions. And so okay. this is the, the, you have no choice around what you effectively react to, okay? So your infant, an infant reacts to whatever stimuli is there. If you dangle something above it and it's interested, it is interested in it. It is interested in it. If it's distress, it's distress. It doesn't learn any of those things, right? You did not teach your child how to be angry, right. how to be disgusted, how to be afraid. None of us learn that. Later, with memory, you now have a biography of affect. So you know, each of us has a personal history about what those affects are because each of us is raised in a different way around each different affect and has different experiences with it. So that's, that's really the difference around aff affect slash memory and emotion that I'm trying to really push because it's a very, very important difference. Yeah, so I was gonna ask, that's a really good, you know, concept to understand. So how, what do dads need to be aware of that as, you know, regardless of what age their kid is, both in themselves in their, in their spouse, and then how to kind of foster the understanding of this with their children so that, you know, you're not, like you said, sh shaming them for something they shouldn't be shamed and, and stuff like that. That's a great question. Um, the most important one is, your child is going to feel whatever your child is feeling, just as you are. If you're distressed from a long day of work and everything is screwed up and you come home and you're in a bad mood, you have no choice over that. You have the choice about what you do with that as an adult. Your kid doesn't. Your kid doesn't have a history of knowing how to calm himself or herself down. They actually need you right. to learn that. So if you bring your distress to their involuntary distress, you're, you're essentially punishing them for something they have no control over. <laughs> yeah, that's, that sense? I've done yeah, that absolutely. so many times and it's, oh, it's hard, but it's, it's a very yeah, important I mean, thing I think, to keep in mind. I, I think every dad has at least once, right? Even the best dad on the planet has probably at least once lost his temper, raised his voice and was like, Ooh, I shouldn't have done that. And yeah. It, it's probably exactly in those moments like you were just describing. So, you know, we've, we're all guilty of it and probably continue to be guilty of it, at least sometimes. How, from, from your perspective as a psychologist, do you kind of undo the damage in that moment, right? Immediately apologize, but then how do you reinforce, you know, like you just said, you kind of punish them undeservingly. So how do we Wait, get back on track? So you apologize in whatever ways your style is you know, in a sincere way and say, well, let, let's solve a problem here. I know I, my guess is that you're hungry. Let's go get something to eat. Daddy's hungry too. Daddy's had a long day. You know, sometimes we all have a hard day. You can, you can actually explain 
age appropriately why you reacted the way you did and instruct them like this is how people this is how people do things there's better ways of doing it than other ways daddy just did it in a really bad way right now and he's sorry for that let's learn from this that's good but, i like that i like that sorry i cut you off go ahead Oh, no, no. So that, that's going to happen with our partners as well. You know, whoever we're involved with. If, if you know, if one of your wives comes home and she's had a shitty day, then if she's in a cranky mood with you, the first thing you want to ask yourself is, is she in distress, which she has no control over? Or is there another affect that she is trying to struggle with? Did she just get shamed at work? Because sometimes the feelings of shame, distress, fear, she's afraid of losing her job, something like that, those, those affects can be so strong that we, our prefrontal cortex, our thinking brain, gets shut down. And what do we do? We use old defenses. You come home and you, you, had not, you, you forgot to pick up groceries or pick up dinner or forgot to pick up the kid. He's still there in, in the park three hours later. I hope that's not happened, but you know, like you screwed up and she's understandably disappointed, but on, on a scale of one to 10, if she's not distressed, it'd be like a two, like really, you left the kid in the park again for three hours. Really don't, stop doing that. If, if she's distressed, it's going to be an eight, right? And it's hard not to take things personally. If you don't, if you don't understand affect theory and how distress and all the other affects work, you are going to take it personally. And then you can have a fight about how she called you a name or like accused you of X, Y, or Z. You're not going to give her grace. Yeah. And I think there's this meme in American culture where, oh, women are so complicated. Men can never understand them. So, uh, you know, there's no point, right? They're just, they're on their own level, which is so unfair to our wives because we can understand them. We can read them, you know, to some extent and say, wow, they had a really hard day. Maybe I should give her a break. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that makes a big difference. If you're willing as a man to take on that attempt and say, all right, let me try to understand where my wife is coming from. You're going to have so much better of a relationship than if you buy into this narrative of women are way more complex than we could ever understand as men. It's not true at all. We have the same basic needs, you know, for the most part, we have different ways of approaching. Very, but, there's uh, like no research that says there's differences affectively. Yeah, both, both human, human emotion different around oh, yeah. right. Right. And women, but those are cultural issues. Those are socialization issues. Those are not right. biological issues. Yeah, I actually, you know, and just recently, I've really learned um, there's just a lot of self study and and kind of like groups where you know other guys are working to be better and things like that. Is the concept of kind of leading your wife through her emotions, which sounds really like strange, right? Well, what do you mean? They're her emotions, but it's kind of kind of verbalize the word for her hey are you are you frustrated right now because this this and this and it's like it's scary if you're the person who's upset with something it's scary to put the words out there in the open because then you're having to be vulnerable but if someone kind of asks leading questions it's like like, yes that's exactly what's been bothering me because it's like someone else broke the ice right so that concept has been very helpful for me too just to it takes me out of that initial like oh she's mad at me type of reaction and says, like, no, there's something more going on here, right? It forces me to think a little bit smarter about the whole situation, give that grace, and say, well, is it this? Or you know, I'm just not understanding. Can you help me understand? That, that like, three-second moment right there is so critical to avoiding the fight, right? And, and a lot of times it's, it's 
if you can just take that pause and, and offer out that right it, it's like a lifeline almost right you're throwing out the the ring and the water for her to finally like get her head above water and go yes that's exactly what's been and it's amazing i i, I wish i would have learned it you know way before i got married but here i am almost 10 years into marriage and i finally learned it but thank you george that's exactly why i put together the the relationship workshops my whole meaningful happiness program which is basically a four-week program teaching things like this because i've had i've done this with people you know with patients and i've done the workshops before and just gotten the same thing george which is like i that you know i would have not dated some of the horrible people that i dated in high school college whatever if i had known this it's so yeah it's really a shame that we're not teaching these things in school. Yeah. And I think that's what's the, the beautiful thing about Tompkins's theory is that he thinks that affects are biologically hardwired and they're triggered, triggered by your stimuli, which is your environment or your experiences. Right. And so we all have the same, like you were saying, we have the same nine um, affects and they're kind of like scripts. And so what can happen is where it gets complex is some of those can combine and create kind of complex emotions. And so if us as dads can really navigate into what those complex emotions are and what those nine affects are and how they react to, to stimuli and how they react to, to a person's personal experience, if we can do that as fathers, we can literally discern why our wife's behaving in a certain way or why our children are. And that's when I talk about like um, children missing certain puzzle pieces, this is that. Like they don't understand what the stimuli is triggering, they just know that that effect is occurring, if that makes sense. So Exactly, Brandon. That, 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 that's exactly right. They they don't know yet. Like, often, like adults don't. Like sometimes I don't know when I'm in a Snickers moment, when I, I'm hangry. Like, I because I've learned in my family, you, you ignore that stuff. You just, you just barrel through it. The next thing I know, like I'm ready to punch somebody. Yeah. Give me a Snickers bar, and all of a sudden, you know, I turn from a gremlin into back to my normal, sweet, cuddly self. So, <laughs> yeah, I get very exactly. angry. Yeah, <laughs> right. And so, kids don't know that. Yeah, and something yeah. I personally struggled with, you know, around the concept of shame. I was very ashamed of being angry for years. I thought that it was a personal failing to be angry. To show any kind of anger felt like a failure to me. So I would kind of push it down, and I would feel very sad about that. Right, and so I spent many years kind of feeling anger as sadness, which is not a great way to be, especially as a man, right? It was, uh, it was kind of a confusing, you know, problematic thing. So I, I think when I did finally learn that it's okay to be angry, as long as you act on it in healthy ways, that was a revelation for me. Um, and it was all wrapped around shame. And that for me, the, the biggest shame when it came to emotion uh, was to be angry, right? That was a, a toxic man who, who, you know, felt angry, essentially. Um, and so when I kind of learn that it's okay to be angry as long as you don't take it out in unhealthy ways. That made a big, big change for me. And so shame was really a big problem for me for many years. Shame is, shame is the most difficult and problematic affect of all of them. And it's pervasive in all relationships from day one, whether that's a romantic relationship, a friendship, or a parent-child relationship. And the reason why, and this is, this is something that I hope I can explain well enough, the reason why is that it's with Tompkins' idea of shame, it's not the emotion of shame. It's not about you're having done something shameful. It's simply 
anything that gets in the way of positive connection with somebody else. It's a biological response. And the best examples I have of this is that have any of you guys ever put together an Ikea piece of furniture? Yes. Okay. That's, <laughs> I, I, I kind of knew the answer to that before. I know where you're going to this. <laughs> okay. So, like, you get it home and like, the kids are in bed. You finally get into it. You're happy to, you know, your wife wants you to have it done. So, tomorrow morning, you know, it's all ready. Typical of Ikea, you know, half the parts are missing. You know, you can't find them in a drawer or someplace else that you might have had from another thing that you put together. And it's now 11 o'clock, and you're going like, this is not going to happen. And what happens? Your hopeful, happy moment of having completed this, your positive connection, your positive affects are now blocked. And you do what I call this, what I call is the slump of shame. You go, damn, damn, you kick, you kick the damn thing or whatever, but you, you, you slump. It's a biological reaction to not being able to connect positively with whatever you're doing or with somebody. If you get embarrassed, you slump. If you get mortified, you get slumped. If you get disappointed, you slump. We actually have a very interesting phrase in our language for the mild end of shame as a biological reaction, which is, isn't it a shame? that he or she couldn't show up. Oh, it's a shame we can't go to the Bruce Springsteen concert. It got, it got you know, sold out. Oh, man, bummer. Bummer is, bummer is the slump of shame. Okay? That, that you're dating and she doesn't call you back? Oh, man. It, has, it can be really mild, but you're still going to do that slump. And so if, if you can keep in mind, at a biological level, shame... Shame is not the emotion of shame, like I'm, I'm feeling so ashamed about this, but that it's a biological reaction to not having the connection positively with whatever you're doing or whoever you're with, then you understand its role in relationships. It's instructive. So as dads, your role is to use shame as minimally as you can to get the job done. And you want... So if the kids, Brent, Georgia was, which one of it, Georgia, were you the one that was doing the karate chop? Like kids, cut, you know, I saw some short, oh, about, yeah. the knife hand, the knife hand, the military <laughs> knife hand. Yeah. It's a total <laughs> joke. I, I think maybe I've knife handed my child one time <laughs> in her life. But, but, you know, but metaphorically, or we, you know, yeah. better, better metaphorically to use the knife hand. But, you know, the whole idea is like, you know, I've, I've had it, you know, enough. When they hear that, they know that there's a hindrance to positive feeling with you. There are only two ways, in terms of affect theory, there's only two ways to show love and to receive love, to give it and get it back. And that's through interest and enjoyment. So interest is caring, being into somebody, sharing, desire, you name it, depending on the context, it's you're giving your attention to that person. Kids are 100% interested in you. And their primary enjoyment is you. 
anytime you cut that off by reprimanding them, by saying, you've got five seconds to get into bed and close your eyes, or you're, you're, the universe is going to come to an end as you know it, is it that that's a hindrance to them. They need, they need that. I mean, that's how they learn because relationships are so important to them for multiple reasons. So there, you, you have so much power to use shame in a positive way by redirecting their interests, redirecting okay. their enjoyment. And if you have to use shame, you use it minimally and you use it around the behavior, not about them. It can never be about their person. Right. You're it's a bad boy you and you'll are, always be a bad boy. Yeah, yeah. You don't say that. You're disgusting because right. your room is unclean. It's, yeah. hey, I'm disappointed yeah. that your room is unclean. Please fix the problem. Not, yeah. that's, right. that's a really good point. And Dustin, yeah. you made a great point too about anger. That's also a form of attention. So a lot of times if kids are acting out very frequently, it's likely because you're not paying enough attention. So they're just doing whatever they can to try and get your attention, even if it's negative. And I know I'm guilty of that. I'll, uh, you know, I'll be paying attention to my phone when I'm with my kid, even though I say I'm not going to. And then he acts out and I go, oh, what are you doing? And I realize he wants my attention. And so how's he going to do it? He's going to break something or spill milk on the floor, whatever it takes to get my attention. And then if I get mad at him, that reinforces his desire to get my attention. And if the only way he can do that is by acting out, he'll continue acting out. And so I'm catching myself in that and realizing, okay, let's not do that anymore. I'm going to pay the attention he deserves. And then his behavior is a lot better. Go figure. It has nothing to do with him. It's all on me as a dad, you know, to, to encourage that good behavior. So when you say to use shame as minimally as possible, there's, there's obviously times where it is necessary. Um, what is the healthy way to do that? Right. Cause I, I know there's lots of debate about how to discipline or, you know, do you spank? Do you not like, there's, it's just such a broad spectrum, you know, can you, from your perspective, what, what should dads focus on as kind of the, the minimal effective amount of shame and what's a good tactic for doing that um, with their kids to teach them, but not break them down? Again, that's a great, that's a phenomenal question and a very complex one. I can tell you that to really parent well, you're giving everything you have fully all the time. Your kids want your interest and your enjoyment all the time. And guess what? You can't do that. <laughs> you know, like you can't do it. I can't, I couldn't do it with my kid. You know, it's just like, it also, there are rules. It's time to go to bed or do this, do that. So frustration with them if you if you're giving them enough interest and enjoyment and you have a really positive connection with them it takes very little frustration on your part for them to get the idea like oh dad's not happy right now and the world is a much much better place when dad is happy but if you My, go to Mach 9 all the time it's happy hmm? if you go to Mach yes. 9 all the time then you have to go to Mach 10 for them to pay attention to you right exactly exactly so you know, I found, you know, I do a lot of coaching with parents and things like that as well as therapy and coaching. Because I, I say coaching because I'm often just having to, to, like, give examples and say, this is what, if this happens, this is what you do. So if your kid is starting to act out, pay attention. Why are they acting out? 
how and what is your role in that? Is it is it because you've come home, you're preoccupied, you're distressed, you're worried, so you're not present? Guess what? They don't care about that. <laughs> you know, they're, they're expecting 100% of you. Yeah. They can't even understand it most times when they're they, younger. So. so they are going to take it personally. So they're going to start feeling distress. And distress, when that continues on, turns to anger. They have no control over that. So what do you do? You say, okay, you know what? Let's, I need to calm my ass down. <laughs> Give me a few minutes. Let's go read. Let's read a book together. Let's play. Let's do something. And if we play, then what I need you guys to do is then we're going to like all brush our teeth or we're going to take a shower or we're going to do this. And we're everybody in agreement? Good. Okay, let's do that. And you follow through on your promise. And you do that a few times. And pretty soon they know they can count on you. They have a peaceful resolution to their distress and a nice evening. But that requires parents to show up. Yeah. That's that's a really good point. But I that last little segment there that you just listed about how, you know, if you follow through with your promises a couple times, they'll they'll get it. I mean they're they're smart, especially emotionally, right? Kids are very in tune to that kind of thing. So uh, I really like that it's a very practical thing that people can do, right? It's not some pie in the sky thing. It's, it's, Hey, I need a minute. We will do this. Just give me five minutes, give me 10 minutes, whatever. And then follow through a couple of times and kind of creates a habit almost. Right. So that's awesome. And I think that, I mean, that's the same with any relationship, right? Whether it's your wife or your friends, <clears throat> if you're that friend who says he's going to hang out and play racquetball and then, uh, you know, you have to cancel last minute, you do that three or four times, you're not going to have that friend much longer. Right. I mean, it doesn't matter whether we're three or we're 30, we appreciate consistent people we know we can count on. Your kids are no different. Right. And Dustin, the canceling, whether it's a friend or anybody else, is is a shame response. Yeah. If you were to cancel, if we had plans and you cancel on me, you know, I'm just gonna like slump and go like, God, he, you know, I'm not that bad at racquetball. I mean, I'm actually better than you are nowadays, um, because you haven't been playing. <laughs> 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 that's fair <laughs> so I, you know just on the concept of the shame too I have, I have another kind of question for you and i think a lot of dads probably struggle with this um is like if if my daughter doesn't do well on like a homework assignment or something i i'm as like calm as a, you know cool as a cucumber like hey i just want to make sure that you understand like why you got it wrong like i don't really care about the paper it's one paper whatever um she's so hard on she's my kid she's super hard on herself and it's like her own personal disappointment in herself because it wasn't a high score or something is just like so intense. I have to spend sometimes 20 minutes just working her out of her own um, self-disappointment. I'm not, I'm just like, I've given no indication that it's a problem that the score wasn't as good, right? Um, I think a lot of dads have kids like that, right? So, so um, I don't know if there's some, maybe I'm not doing it the best way, but I, I think that that's something too that, it's not even you've caused the issue necessarily like you messed up as dad, but how can you help get your kids back on, you know, back to happiness really um, and not being stuck in their shame? Well, you, you, you just answered it yourself, which is that you give your daughter attention. You, you show interest in her. 
and you're enjoying being with her, even if she's in distress around it. And so you're not adding to it, and you're giving her the two positive affects that she needs. And she's going to internalize that over time. And at some point, you need to say, like, I want you, one of the things you could say is, I expect you to do as best as you can. You know I'm here to help you. If you don't understand a subject, please come to me and I'll help you with this. I want you to do well. And when you don't do well, I don't love you any less. What? I'm not going to like it if you just slough off and you don't live up to your potential. But I'm also like, if you don't always live up to your potential, none of us do. So by the way, just sometimes you just screw up on a test. Blow it off. You're doing fine. So Best. that attitude, so you have to like show grace, you know, like it's grace and expectations. It's a, it's a tough balance. It's a science and an art. Brandon, you sure. Yeah. So with Tompkins theory, um, I guess one of my main questions is as a father trying to teach my kid emotional intelligence and regulation, what are some ways we can teach them regulation through these affects and through these stimuli? Is there specific ones that kids generally react better to, or is there ones that, uh, cause I know that the affects and the stimuli both can affect their personality and like their, their mental health. And so as a, a dad personally, I just want to be able to give my kids regulation and intelligence, but I want to do it in a healthy way. Um, so like without shame. So what would be some, some surefire ways to do that? I'm trying to, I'm trying to imagine the situation. And if you could help me come up with a specific example, because the, again, the affects, we have no control over it. Sure, what, sure. So, Great example. My son is, um, he's eight. Um, he is ADHD and he has some sensory things like when, when his sensories just kind of overload, he, he really overloads himself. And so he'll go to these, excuse me, he'll go to these extremes where he'll say, dad, you never give me attention or you do this or this is just too much. And like, he's really crying. He's really worked up. And it's like, son, I'm giving you attention. I'm looking at you. I'm, I'm here and I'm willing to listen, but he, his brain is still telling him otherwise. And so I'm trying to teach him how to cope and to, um, to regulate when those emotions are high. And I've used breathing techniques, for example, but I, I just feel like sometimes he's still falling short, especially if I'm not there to help him kind of regulate that. So like if, you know, if he's at school, for example, and a, some kid's bullying him and shoves him and then it sends him into a very high sensory state, what can I do to teach him at home to, to help regulate those kind of emotions, those, those stimuli um, based on his theory? Uh, th that's a, those are great. That's a great example. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to be respectful of the fact that, you know, I, neither of you two are, are my patients. So like, I, I don't know, have the full everything around it, but yeah, the, sure. Sure. Just generalize. Yeah. So yeah, that's what I was going to say is I'm going to be general generalizing quite a bit. Do you ask him what he needs in terms of showing him attention, showing interest? This, this, when he says you're not showing me enough, do you, I imagine you have asked him like, so what do you, what do you need? Do you need me to rub your back? Do you need me to like, Listen to you and not interrupt you. Right. So uh, initially what I was doing was I was 
explaining and proving ways in which I did to try to reassure him. But I just kept feeling like when I was journaling and thinking about it later on and examining it myself, it was like it wasn't explaining it wasn't enough. Like it wasn't he wasn't processing that. And so um, I eventually learned the connection thing like you're discussing where I would just go up and I would make him feel safe and I would hug him and I'd hold him when he'd say stuff like that. That way his cup was filled and he understood, okay, my dad does love me. He is here for me. But at the same time, it's like, I just really want to help equip him. So like he has armor when he's going out and I'm not around to do that. You know what I mean? And as he gets older, he needs to be able to do that himself anyways. And so I guess my main concern for, for him, especially with the sensory issues is, I really want him to be equipped properly because the world's going to be so much harsher to him than I would ever be. So, Wait, so one of the, the sad things about American culture is that boys get pushed away at an early age from both their moms and their dads, at least historically. And boys need affection and hugs and all that all the way up to 18 just like girls do. And dads push girls away once they hit puberty because dads get freaked out by their, their girl budding and turning into a woman. And they go like, oh, you know, this is too much. And so the girls feel rejected. So I share this because you guys are going to need to figure out, if, especially if you have girls, how are you going to deal with her becoming a sexual being without rejecting her. She's still needing hugs and affection and so forth. And boys do as well. An eight-year-old is basically a big five-year-old. <laughs> okay. You know, they're, they're not yeah. emotionally, <laughs> developmentally much different, you know, so holding, you know, holding him, you know, just like sitting on the sofa or lying down, like with, with my daughter, she'd come home in distress and she, she would sit next to me and then I wouldn't say much of anything. It sounds, you know, I'd say something like, yeah, it sounds like you had a crappy day. Mm-hmm, yeah. Not much. She wouldn't say anything. Was it Susie? Yeah. You know, and it would take a while. Like, I would let her, it would take a while for her to get going. And then pretty soon she was, her leg went over my leg. And next thing she's like over, like, you know, leaning over like that. And she goes, yeah, and I don't like it. And so, so. then I couldn't get her to stop. But she's basically in my arms. And I have my arm around her, and that's what she needs. And almost every kid needs that. And so, like, in your case, Brandon, with your son, to say, when, th- when something's happening at school, when I'm not there, imagine me holding you like this. You've got me oh with God. you all the time. I'm there. I've got you in my arms. And if you need that coming home, when I get home, you're going to get the same thing. So, you know, like, even if it's, you're going through a hard time, you're going to get this. And I promise you that because that's what they need to internalize. That's what they can carry with them their whole life. And that's affect. That's so right good. There. Does that's that, so that good. Sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, yeah, man, I, I love filling my kids' cups up. So, when he says that, I know it's just out of a, a want for more of that connection, a hunger for it. 
but it's still kind of, you know, as a dad, it breaks your heart when you're giving your all. And he says something like that. And I know I'm kind of being vulnerable, but it's like, I want other dads to realize that it doesn't matter who you are, man. Your kids are going to feel this way when they hunger for your attention. So, man, that's so beautiful that you actually explained it thoroughly like that. So thank you so much. I'm glad. Yeah, yeah it's when they're in distress, it, it, they use your name as part of their distress. It is so hard. It is impossible not to take that personally. You're the worst dad. I can't, you're making me go to bed. Like my 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 friends' dads are nicer than you are. You know that's <laughs> <laughs> like come on, then go go stay with them. You know, but of course you you could do it. You can say whatever you want to in your own head, but it's hard. It's it's really hard. I think George earlier you said, you know that that was three seconds, you know, to realize oh this kid is in distress or my wife is in distress. Don't take it personally. Those three seconds save marriages and keep your connection with your kids. Yeah. It, it's huge. I mean, just even since I learned it, it's only been a couple months. Just being more mindful about that before I respond to think, make sure I'm in my, my adult brain and not the, the reactive brain. And it's amazing how much different all those interactions go for the positive. Um, Versus if you just spit it right out, right? Um, especially as the guys too, I think, you know, depending on your background, a lot of time we, we bristle, right? We get defensive, get all macho and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of times, you know, sometimes brute force is the appropriate response. That's like 1% of the time, <laughs> you know, but we want to use it 99% of the time. So, um, well, by the yeah, way, three... that bristling, that, that anger as a guy is a shame response. It's because guys in our culture are taught not to feel shame or to recognize that they're feeling shame. And so they don't, they don't calm themselves down. They punch wow. instead. I'm going to be journaling so much in the next few <laughs> weeks. My goodness. That's a, but that's is, a really good point is... you made, though. I mean, we need to, so, you know, we're here to help dads and here to, you know, bump the needle for, for marriages and stuff. Um, that's a huge, profound statement right there. I don't think I, I've never really heard it said before. So that's, that's something that every, everyone listening to this should take a minute on and reflect, you know, how, when I've gotten angry, is it because of something else there? Is it, is it a shame thing? Um, cause then you can find root cause, right? It, start doing something about it. it. It's really easy to feel hurt as a dad when you don't do good parenting. And then it's really easy, given how vulnerable they are and they can't fight back, to say it's their fault. And so it's normal. It is totally normal to feel ashamed. Again, it doesn't mean that you've done something shameful. If you interpret it as shameful, that's a different issue. That's an emotion. That's not the affect. Mm -hmm. But this, the sense of, like, I just let my kid down is a disconnection to positive, connect, to positive feeling with them, right? Yeah, it's a biological shame response, and it's You're it's and go like that kid, like yeah. oh, is such a struggle. She's such a struggle, and my feelings are hurt. Okay, okay, my feelings are hurt, and it's it's a very victim kind of mentality. Oh, my kid is just a mess. There's nothing I can do. It's so empowering as a dad to say, all right. What's going on here? Why is my kid upset? And when you can figure out, wow, actually it was something I did. 
and I can fix that. That is the best feeling in the world to take control over that and say, here's the behaviors that I can change and I can be better. You know, whereas if it's just my kids a mess, my wife is crazy and the world is unfair, you're going to feel very unhappy because you're a victim in that situation. And there's nothing you can do. So parenting for guys really requires right now that yet you understand affect, but you understand emotions and understand that 99% of everything that's happening relationally between you and your kids and your spouse is affect and emotion related. The, the, the thoughts come as justification later. Okay. But the gender stereotyping around feelings gets in the way of, of dads doing good parenting. Trust me, getting into your feelings and knowing affect doesn't mean you're going to buy a tutu and take your boy out. It, it, yeah, it's just, it's like, emotional intelligence. This right? is not like a queer theory. Yeah. You know, well, your kid's going to be called they now and you're you know, like all this, like that's right. not going to happen. It has nothing. Those issues have nothing to do with feeling and affect. Well, and even in the very traditional sense, right? Like the masculine versus female, the masculine is the piercer, not just in a sexual sense, but it, it's your job to pierce through their emotions and to, like I said earlier, kind of lead them through it, especially with your kids, right? They're, they're a kid. They don't have the tools to work through the thing. So yeah, it, it in, in many ways, it's actually one of the most masculine things you can do to realize what's happening, kind of hone in on it, pierce through the, you know, the, the distress in this case, um, and then teach them how to get through, right? And, and so I agree with you 100% that, uh, you know, I think maybe a lot of the problems we have right now is because, um, you know, dads have historically just kind of, Oh, that's not my, that's not my strength or that's not what a man does type of thing. And, um, you're really missing out aside you're, from, you're aside from the problems that's created, you're, you're personally missing out on some of the, the most important parts of being a dad. So yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. You're missing out on love. Interest and enjoyment are what we have in terms of being able to show and receive love. If you're not there for that. You're not getting any love and you're not giving it bottom line. Yeah. You're just and your kids give it, get, they give it unconditionally. Yeah. You know, they're like one of the few people in the entire world that you will ever have the blessing of having unconditional love from exactly like, right. wholeheartedly. Awesome. So, damn. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's the gravity of the situation, dad. So listen up, pay attention to that. Uh, Scott, I wanted to kind of transi- transition a little bit here to, meaningful happiness, uh, how you define it, what that means. And then, uh, you know, obviously from there, that that's kind of your work now too. Right. So um, the reason I'm laughing is that I I deliberately came up with that phrase. And I, and I, I ran it by every one of my friends and colleagues and they all looked at me and said, are you kidding? That is so, who do you think you are? Do you have the answer to that? I said, absolutely no. I do not have the answer to that. And they go like, what? Especially my psychology friends. Like, that's just like so lame. Like, and I said, guess what? You're not my audience. <laughs> like, I'm not marketing to you. <laughs> and yep. 
you're already on the path if you're i hope as a psychologist or a psychotherapist to trying to answer those questions you're asking those questions already i came up with that because i think there are, those two are the two most important questions you need to ask on this planet what makes you happy what is meaningful and how are they related so happiness doesn't always mean that things are going to be positive according to some ways of understanding it i mean there's there's a place for suffering right so how do you define happiness that's a great question what's meaningful i don't know i know that it's a it's a it's a conversation that we have to have with ourselves and among ourselves all the time and it's one those two questions are ones that your kids are going to be asking themselves all the time and you want to you want to keep them in dialogue around it in some ways the worst thing you could do is preempt it by telling them this is the answer mm. yeah cuz they may go a completely different path than you and you'll cut it off before they even start that way you shaking your head brandon like <laughs> yeah because the suffering comment uh so there is and i know this sounds crazy but there is happiness in suffering and in grief and i've seen it before because i've seen thankfulness for the time that people had with people before they passed and they're crying and they're grieving but they're happy too so it's it's such a unique thing to think about because they're two conflicting things on the opposite side. Um, yeah. <laughs> you got my brain churning a whole lot right well, now. Well, I mean, on that point, I mean, you can't typically just generalizing as humans, we don't get good at anything until we failed numerous times. Like yeah, I think right. it's, I think in order to become an expert at something, you need 10,000 plus hours on just one skill. So, you know, there's, there's more suffering than there is, you know, success typically um so and, and then also if you never suffered how would you know what the difference between happiness is from you know what i mean it, you, you almost need the yin and the yang so to speak the the difference to to appreciate um when things are good but dustin you had a really good uh thought here let's maybe just round table on what we each think meaningful happiness is since it's kind of a open concept and then scott um We'll come back to you and talk about how you're, you know, using this as a workshop and, and what you, you know, without giving away the good parts, of course, but kind of hinting at, um, you know, what you've decided that you can do to, to make a difference in people's lives. So I'd love to come back to it. And I'm super eager to, if, if one of you have the answers to the question, <laughs> meaningful and happy. Well, I, I know from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the, the answer to life is 42. So that's right. That's yeah. a start we just don't point. know the question. Yeah. yeah. All right, Dustin, um, you lead it off then since you yeah, brought it up. Yeah, I can start, definitely. So I think what gives me meaning and long-term happiness or joy is knowing that I can leave the world around me a little bit better place. And I don't think I can I can change the world. You know, I don't think I'm going to um, affect a billion people in China or I'm going to, you know, shift geopolitics in some way. But I do think that my little town in Florida will be a better place because I was there. I think I can make my family and my my children better people because of me. 
Um, so knowing that I can leave the world a better place um, really drives me and gives me hope and um, gives me that that meaning and makes me happy. Um, so I think that's kind of the way I define it for myself. All right, Brandon, go ahead. Yeah, so meaningful happiness for me is there's a couple of things, but the main thing that really sticks out for me would be like the altruism, like just adding value to other people's lives, uh, most especially the ones I love, because like we have the current moment, you know, it's a flicker of a life um, when you look at eternity. And uh, for me personally, it's like I want to bless and I want to to add value as much as I possibly can to the gifts that God has bestowed upon me to 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 bless others because man like when you're tired or you're sad or you're you're depressed if you're helping others i feel like god gives us the strength to do that but also like it's just it really just really makes me happy and so my meaningful happiness yeah is is altruism uh and the journey of it because you know there's uh, there's times where you try to be altruistic and it could be selfish or it could be something that just you, you failed on, but you know, you keep learning, you keep growing in that journey instead of just looking at the top of the mountain, it's the whole journey to the mountain. And so for me, it's like, yeah, definitely going to say altruism for sure. All right. I guess I'm up next. Um, I was kind of just pondering this. I think, I think it's in phases, right? Whatever season of your life you're in, that's going to mean a very different thing. Um, so currently I'm at a point where I'm very focused on my daughter. She's seven. Um, and so I think that my answer 10 years from now would be drastically different. But uh, for me, you know, my kind of guiding direction, my azimuth is based upon my faith. Um, so a lot of that is derived, um, you know, what I would call meaningful is, der- is derived from my faith. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, I think the happiness is more of kind of the, the, temp- the temperament or a temporary in the moment type of, things so i'm still trying to work towards my meaning my purpose my mission um you know but the happiness is what we feel kind of along the way maybe um so for right now i think it's just i'm really focused on being the best man i can be being the best husband and father i can be um you know, kind of quoting maslow's hierarchy of needs for me that's self-actualization right now is you know, work is work and you know I've, I've had some careers now and have had success in those things and whatnot but none of that really matters anymore to me even close to, to, you know, being a better dad or being a better husband. So I think it's a seasonal thing too, right? As, as you age and, or maybe your situation changes, that has to change, right? You, you would, you know, if you're blown off course or something you, and you're trying to get back, obviously you're going to be very different than if you're straight on. So that's my thought. No, I appreciate, I appreciate everything that you all said. I mean, I relate to every, every single thing. Um, you know, my daughter is now 26, and she just moved back from, she was off to college and did well, and then she was gone for like six years. You know, I mean, I saw her fairly often. But to have her back in town and and to have her want to be with me once or twice a week, and we're doing movie night and dinners and all that, and that she loves to be with me and that I have a good connection with her is probably the most rewarding and happy thing of my life that, you know, and says, absolutely. I, I did something right or got, or got really lucky, you know, either way I'm, I'm, I'm good. You know, um, I think there's a combination of the two. One of the things when I was doing the research for, for the, 
for the what do you call it the branding coming up with the name meaningful happiness is that in english there isn't anything in between like happy and unhappy that kind of conveys contentment i mean contentment but contentment can also come off as complacency right yeah it almost sounds like you're settling when you say that word even if you're not right 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 it's like that's not what i mean yeah. i mean like there's an in to me doing the next right thing no matter what the situation is requires thought feeling affect you know, looking at it, the implications and also weighing how much is am I involved in it? How much does, does my decision affect everybody else? And so the outcome may not make me happy, but it'll be the next right thing to do. Yeah, that kind of goes back to the whole suffering thing, right? Like the, you doing the right thing in that moment may personally make you very unhappy, but in the long run, it's going to either grow you or produce some outcome in the long run that's needed or necessary or, or better. Um, Getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning to to give my daughter a bottle when she was, you know, two months old. Yeah. Did not make me happy. I, mean, I, spent a year, I was sleep deprived for a year. She owes me big time. You know? <laughs> so, and she's paid it back many times over um, and just being her. But yeah, you know, you, there's certain type of suffering and delayed gratification that, that we sort of made reference to. But the question of meaningful happiness is not a simple one but it's a critical one. And the thing that makes us most unhappy, if you want to use an inverse sort of way of looking at it, is we're most unhappy when we're in a shame place because shame again means we're disconnected from positive connection with others, but there's a hindrance there. Mm -hmm. So when we hurt the people we love or we hurt ourselves, we're feeling self-shame we're disconnected from ourselves, right? And so that causes a lot of emotional pain. I think we've all been there. Well, I'm not living up to my ideals. Or I've done something where I'm not living up to my ideals by hurting somebody I care about. So shame is a positive motivator to do the right thing. If we understand what it is, if, if we don't shame people about their shame. Right. We don't want to make people shameful, shame, shame filled. We want to use it as a corrective device. Mm -hmm. We don't want to we don't want our kids or ourselves walking around feeling ashamed. That's good. good point. I'd have to say if, if you ever do like a pillar approach to your meaningful happiness, one of the pillars is going to be connection. 100%. Oh, it is. I mean, yeah. that's just intentional connection whether it's with God, your, your family, the ones you love. I mean, that's just almost the answer in everything. Well, thank you, Brandon. Actually, there's a metaphor that I use that I start my relationship workshops with, which is that life feels like an ongoing movie, right? Like it, it, it can feel like there's, it's just, it's happening to us. Like we're in, we're in this, we're in this script that we didn't write. You know, we just woke up and now we're just living it. You didn't get we to rehearse the lines. Screenplay, screenwriting class at all. Or the primary actor. We're, we're having to do the screen screenplay as well. Shit, we're directing it as well. 
And we're also producing it. We're having to fund it, and we're also having to like find the other members, right? So what I did is I, I, parallel, I parallel those. I, I matched those up with what I call the four foundational relationships that we have. The first one is your relationship with yourself. Yourself is the primary actor. You're stuck. There's nobody else that's going to take your role. You know, like there's, think about it. There's, there's no way out of that one. Though some people want to get out of that and say, like, no, I'm not really in charge of this. Well, I'm sorry, you are. There's like, that's just a given. Okay, so, so you have a primary foundational relationship with you. Why are you telling the story? You have a primary foundational relationship with meaning. So that either comes from God, from, from a teleological external source, or that you're here to make the world a better place, or, or you're here to, to raise kids to make the world a better place, or there's magical crystals that actually control everything. I, I don't really care. You know? I knew it! <laughs> Are you Thanos? Are you here to come get the Infinity Stones? <laughs> I saw them all over your house. You've always had one. That's, if that's your meaning, that's your meaning. That's fine. But you have to, have, you have to figure that out. Okay? So I, I will say, I will challenge you that even if you're a person of faith, God wants you to challenge that relationship. It's not a given. You have to have a, a, a dialogic relationship with God. That's actually foundational it, theologically. Okay? Nothing. Passivity yeah. doesn't work in life. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it, blind faith is never, you know, it, if you take the Christian Bible, for example, because that's, that's our faith here. But, right. um, you know, God demands growth. He demands improvement. He demand, demands you to have accountability with other people who are wiser and smarter than you to, to constantly be better. So he yeah, wants to dialogue even, with you. He doesn't want, he, exactly. He, just, he wants, like, if, if you want to view him as a father, he wants it. He wants, he wants to dialogue with you as to help you grow. Whatever else, wherever else you get your meaning, it's still going to be work in the same way. So you have a primary foundational relationship with meaning. If a foundational relationship with money as well, how are you going to fund this? What are the ethical ways and responsible ways? And that includes, are you taking care of yourself? So if, if you start figuring this out, all four of these, once I get to them, are interrelated. Is it the right thing Just to go into a lot of debt, to go to, to become X, Y, or Z? And does that mean you're never going to spend time with your kids or your spouse? Does that mean that you're, the implications of how you're funding your life affect your relationship with you and also have something to do with what you find meaningful. Do you have to be a doctor? Do you have to be rich? Do you have to do this? Do you have to do that? Why? Why? I'm not saying that I know the answer, but I will challenge you to ask those questions. 
once you have those three answered there, maybe then maybe that's the time then to decide who you want to have in your life to be there. Because if they don't have the same values as you do, if they're not taking care of yourself, their selves, sorry, if they're not taking care of themselves and have the value to take care of themselves, to be in their role as fully as they can, as you do, if they don't view the meaning of life the same way as you do, and if their values around money are very different than yours, I don't think you're going to be a good match. Okay. So yeah, it's certainly going to cause distress. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then if you haven't worked through, like you said, the first three, you know, whatever baggage you have and they have. It's going to, it's going to be middle. a clash of Titans, right? You know, it's like, it's not going to be fun. I mean, what overlap do you have? So the best thing that you can do in a relationship, you know, whether you do it formally through my workshops or you using that, that platform, or just simply asking those questions of each other is in your relationships, ask these questions. One of the funnest and most rewarding things I did during the pandemic is meet a bunch of millennials and Gen Zers who were lost. There's a bunch of rappers and hip hoppers here in Atlanta, and I know a couple of managers. And these folks, you know, grew up in, you know, really bad parts of cities and things like that, but they had lots of talent. And they'd come over, and I'd, I'd make food for them all through my friend. I really would, because I have a kind of a venue space here. So they'd bring their music and they'd do their performances. And I would actually, literally, I would make them vegetables and t tell them to turn their phones off and to make them eat the vegetables and that they could have their phones back after they would have a conversation with me. And they wouldn't, I had, I, like, it would be three o'clock in the morning. I couldn't get them to go away because they're like, this is the best. Like, the questions about what's meaningful, like, what, what does it mean to suffer? All these, they wanted to talk about these things. They needed a they, boomer dad. They needed a, no, no, I'm not a boomer. Snoop <laughs> <laughs> Dogg, eat your vegetables. <laughs> but I just act, and weed doesn't count as a vegetable. <laughs> I still act like a boomer. Like, okay, that's just my personality. <laughs> I was a grandpa when I came out of the, the womb, you know. <laughs> Turn the music off. It's too loud. Slow down. This is the neighborhood. Yeah, right. No, I, went out to, I went out to a local restaurant with my daughter. And I swear to God, I had this problem when I was 16. I, I hate going to restaurants and having to say, what? 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 Like yeah. The music. Like I'm having to listen to the playlist of the manager, right? So that, that that's not that that's just me. Um, but my point being that these questions get people excited. We just need to start asking them. They're the foundational ones. Get your kids involved in them. I mean, age appropriately. Yeah. So that's, that's yeah. You, you don't ask your eight year old what do you think of Kierkegaard? You know they like what. Nietzsche, you got a you got a position on Nietzsche. I like the color <laughs> green. <laughs> Carl Young, anybody? Carl Young, yeah, come on, come here. There you go. Archetypes. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. your kid would be collectively unconscious if you start talking about Carl Young. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
I'm clear. I'm curious as as we sort of wrap up here. Um, so Scott is going to let you walk through my screen. Your workshops. Uh, <laughs> I'm seeing things. This looks familiar. Yeah. So I was, I was just going to let you kind of walk through your meaningful happiness website, and you know, if people are interested, they can uh, kind of reach out to you. Is it in person or virtual? Both. Right now, right now it's in formation. Um, I'm hoping to have it in person soon. I'm most likely going to have much of it by way of like a webinar, uh, virtual, and then want to um, have it eventually filmed so that the people can download the, the courses online as a subscription model. I don't know who All they right. are. And so they for those up, listening, they just showed up on my website. They look like nice people. Yep. <laughs> so for those listening, it's meaningfulhappiness.org. And uh, you can look it up there and uh, check it out if you're interested in that. And, and follow me on Instagram. Meaningful Happiness RW. RW stands for Relationship Workshops. See, like I truly, I truly care about kids. You see, I even have kids on my website. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not lying. So these are the four questions that you just talked about. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So as we're wrapping up, I'm curious if there's any last thoughts you have, like what what this conversation did for you. Yeah, I would just for dads that. Um, so we have all been kind of self-searching and and working on ourselves and going through our past traumas and all these things. So for a dad that's never done that, and he's 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 going to get really fresh into some of the raw emotions that that you know he had trauma with in the past. What are some great healthy ways for them to explore that uh, without re-traumatizing? I'm a group therapist, and the reason I I really push group is that I really think it's the gold standard of psychotherapy. I had to do. Th- two or three years of it is part of my training my, for my master's degree. And so every week in the people that I was training with, we had to meet every week for those two or three years. And it changed my life. So to have people sharing their experiences, learning how to be vulnerable, giving each other suggestions, but also more importantly, seeing the unconscious patterns that trauma recreates in relationships. And having those pointed out to you, and having the opportunity within that group to do things differently and, and not be shamed by it. Because shame is such a powerful thing that people will not make changes because they're so scared that they're going to be re-traumatized by shame. So group therapy is, is affordable and powerful. For most people, they won't do it because of pride, you know, and it's, it's, it's really a shame. And guys, really, the guys, I used to run lots of men's groups, and I'm starting another one right now with just men. And it's amazing to get seven or eight guys in the same room, all fidgeting and like looking down, looking, doing the slump of shame. And then within two or three minutes, all of a sudden, they're like, oh, my God, why? Why didn't somebody make me do this? I, I needed this in high school. If I'd had a group like this in high school, my life would be different. 
So, Brandon, does that answer your question? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. That was so good. We did the, yeah, absolutely. You should be ashamed, Brandon, for, <laughs> for using it. So, Scott, every show, one of us ends up saying the phrase, yeah, absolutely. It's it's like this curse that, that jumps in. And it's Dustin's Scott, fault. Yeah, I, I, I know. It's completely my fault. Exactly. Um, Scott, what do you think – why are so many men specifically so ashamed of having any kind of mental health issue? Is it uniquely American? I know you traveled quite a bit. Do you see this same fear of discussing – any kind of emotion. I feel sad today. You know, it's, it's hard for me as an American man to tell my friends, I feel sad today, right? It's a, it's a kind of a source of shame for me to admit I had kind of a tough day and I'm a little sad. You think that's uniquely American? You think it's just a male experience? What do you think is going on there? I think it's I, for guys in general around the world, it's, it's been pretty socialized, especially in Western society. Um, I don't know African society at all. I mean, I mean, I lived in Africa for a while. I think, you know, it's, I think it's the same thing there, that you, that you don't make yourself vulnerable. And the sad thing is, is that as you guys know, guys feel vulnerable all the time. So they're basically lying to themselves and others when you're not being vulnerable. It's really harder to be vulnerable to say, my boss just gave me shit today and I feel like I'm failing and I'm afraid to bring it up with my wife. I feel really small. I feel like like a 13-year-old, like I'm not doing well and I want to just hide. If that's how you're feeling, that's what you need to say. Because I know if you told, one of you told me that, I'd say like, dude, I've been there like a thousand times. <laughs> Look. What, what do you need to do? You, do you want to talk? Do you want to have a cup of coffee, glass of wine, what, what, whatever works for you? It's fine. I heard it all. If that's what you want to end with, right? With, if that's all you want to say, I got what you're saying. If you want to talk more about it, cool. But it's got to get out. It'll kill you otherwise. Literally, I mean, it will literally, literally kill you. I put out a, I put out a, um, a post yesterday in response to the Surgeon General's uh, announcement that we ha we are now in a pandemic of loneliness. And it's mostly guys. Women as well, but obviously the uh, 16 over are killing themselves either through alcoholism, drug use, or actual suicide. Millennials and Gen Zers are, have the highest rate of, of self-harm as well as suffering from anxiety and depression at pandemic levels. We need to be talking about these things. Yeah, it's, it's a problem. Um, and, and that's where, so my question, actually, this is perfect segue is, um, I don't know if you've heard the book called tribe by Sebastian younger. Um, tribe by Sebastian younger. I worked yeah. That. But just the whole concept that, especially men, need a tribe, need an inner circle, trusted group, um, where you're competitive together, you hold each other accountable, things like that. And and if you don't have that, I think we're just hardwired biologically to need that. And it could be small. Like for me, it's the three other guys I do this podcast with, right? That's that's probably one of my closest tribes. Yeah. Um, 
so it doesn't have to be like this huge group but not having that i you know that's why men feel so alone is because i think dustin brought it up two episodes ago maybe it was a stat that like something of men polled something upwards of 70 percent of men said they don't even have a close friend so if you don't have that i guess from your my my question to you is what is your perspective on that do you think that's a uniquely male thing is it an american culture thing does it transcend just our country is it is it a kind of universal need you know and if um if it is indeed a need you know what's practical ways to, to start solving that, right? Join a club or something or how to, how to go about it. We need community. Dustin and I have had a few conversations around this. It's like, you need churches, synagogues, mosques, you need racquetball clubs. You need small enough groups where people get together that no matter what their background is, um, they have a commonality around a specific task or interest or something where they learn to get along. Most of the guys that I play racquetball with have different political beliefs than I do. And so it doesn't matter. Like that's, that's not why we're there, but we, we get along. I'm not a big sports fan. They all talk about sports. I mean, every time I bring something up, I say, was that the badminton group? Or is that, you know, I, I joke. <laughs> I can't, re- I still can't remember who's, you know, which is which. It doesn't the, matter. Uh, the Dallas Cowboys are actually a pickleball team, if you were curious. That's right. That's right. Yeah. They might uh, actually win that way. <laughs> What's Why that? has it got to be like that? <laughs> See, like that, that went totally over my head. Like um, it went, it went directly into Dustin's heart. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but community, community is everything. It we 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 need that one way or the other. You know that. We need a thing that brings people together, and our our humanity and our suffering and our parenting and our ability to love and all that is what needs to be nourished, no matter what our differences are. In the Episcopalian Church, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, is is community, and so that's their biggest push. Is they believe they they believe that that's how God shows Himself is in community. And I've loved it for that reason. That particular aspect of their faith is, I think, fits with fits with what I do. So, finding commonality versus difference, right? It, especially in our political climate, I think is probably the healthiest thing you can do. Wise words for sure, um, but I. To take it just a little bit step further is I think, you know, dads, we, we talk about how difficult it is, right? Your kids expect 100% perfection with your emotions and affect and everything. Um, I personally believe that it's inherently a requirement for other for dads to have other dads that you can vent and relate to and try and be better with because, geez, I couldn't, man, I couldn't imagine doing all this on my own and just trying to figure it out in isolation. Uh, that'd be crushing to me. So I'm so glad I'm so glad you guys are doing this. I think this is a super valuable venue to like to talk about these sort of things, and is exactly what guys need. I mean, mom, moms get together all the time to talk about kids. It's a great point. That's one of the core reasons we started doing this. You know, we were like, "There's something wrong in our culture. We need to do something about it. How can we do something about it? Let's start a podcast." <laughs> I mean, that was, 
I'm really dumbing it down, but that's in essence one of the huge driving motivators for us is because we just look around and like you just said, there there doesn't seem to be outlets for men to have these conversations that are productive. Generally, there's a a um, an association of shame to it. Uh, right. In the competitiveness, I mean, Dustin knows this. I'm, I'm super competitive. I mean, I'm I'm competitive academically. I'm competitive in terms of my career. I like to, I like to succeed, and I like kicking Dustin's butt on the racquetball court. On which, which often is so I, rare that I it's kind of frustrating for you. I like shaming <laughs> in public around sports, you know, playing them. So like, I'm I'm cool with competition, but. You can't you can't do that with parenting, you know. There's a place for competition, playful competition. You know, there are. Dustin and I were talking about this the other day. Like, I was playing with this new guy who who got so upset about missing. Oh, because I beat him, that he hit his racket against the wall so hard that he broke a hundred and fifty dollar racket because he lost the game. Like, no, no, that's not healthy. And he hurt his wrist. And I thought, you know, I hope you learn from this. There is a place for shame. You moron. No, no I'm joking. Like, I, I, <laughs> <laughs> so you're shamed of the advance. Exactly. <laughs> you, that is shameful behavior. Stop that. Um, for guys to get together requires that they let the guard down and not be competitive among each other in more traditional ways. You know, the, 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 the way the guys have generally... You know, hit you know shoulder stuff down and out. They need to like chill out. Like again, it's not like putting on pink tutus and like being weird. You know, like it's just like you're gonna be yourselves. You know, you're just you're just gonna be a little. It's gonna actually be like what we're doing right this minute. Yep. Scott, what's weird about me putting on a pink tutu? I'm wearing one right now. That's the most distracting thing. What you do. <laughs> <laughs> Is that how he wins at racquetball? Is, it's a competitive advantage. Nobody it's the pink tutu just throwing you off the whole time. Man, that's so distracting. Like Ace so, Ventura when he had the tutu. Yeah, when he goes to the, the mental hospital. That's exactly, yeah. He like wiggled his ass when he's like serving. It was like, dude, that is like so not nice. You know, now whatever know. it takes. Whatever it D- takes. Dustin yeah. can't win legit. He's got to use <laughs> subterfuge. I've got to go dirty. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> New meme in progress. Yep. Oh yeah. Uh, we need we need the legion of memers out there to take a picture of Dustin and Photoshop a, a nice tutu on him. That'll be. We can, we can all put it. We can make a little like the little uh, hula dolls, you know, that that wiggle. We can get one made of Dustin. That'd be great. I have a feeling that that's going to be happening at some point pretty soon. <laughs> Probably. Yep. You can always count on the internet to make the best humor. That is that is one of the upsides of the internet. For all the downsides, you, you do hey, get the I, best I, humor. ChatGPT could make that for you, right? <laughs> yeah. There you go, mid-journey. You go. Yep. Pop it in. Yeah, that's right. Well, so, guys, this um, great. I'd like to do this again. I mean, you guys are great to talk to. Definitely. Yeah, we could. Uh, I, I'd love to maybe have a very specific topic or maybe an event or something like that uh, and have you back. And um, it, I, I love hearing your perspective, right, with all of your experience and then professional experience as well to – kind of just unpack some of these very difficult topics. Um, you know, I think this is a very productive conversation. I certainly learned a lot. I took a bunch of notes. And uh, Scott, just thank you for your time. And uh, I, I also thank you for being so intentional about 
trying to make a difference on you know for for dads and, and for men um because i think we all agree that it, it's not talked about enough and then uh what you shared too about gen z and and uh uh forget the other one but uh well, the high rates of yeah. self-harm you know that's that's a very growing problem but i think that you know our generation parenting um effectively can help reverse that trend hopefully I agree. I think I think you guys can make a difference, and you're you're working at doing it. And you guys had great questions, and you guys are more than anything else fun to talk to, and that's what really counts. Yep. Appreciate that. That's the beauty of podcasting. It's just you're basically just having a good time. So, Scott, yeah. we we thank you very much for your time, and uh, for those of you listening, again, you can find him at meaningfulhappiness.org for his workshops, and then on Instagram, Scott, say it again. Uh, meaningful happiness rw for relationship workshops all right so do us all a favor go follow him on instagram he'll give you daily doses of wisdom uh, they're excellent and uh scott it's been a pleasure thank you thank you guys take care thanks for tuning into this episode of the present father's podcast make sure that you subscribe to our youtube channel and follow us on spotify to catch all of our amazing episodes We will see you in the next one.